We're going to open to Matthew chapter 18 this morning, which is our text, Matthew 18. Oh, to be like the Lord. Oh, to be loving like He is, to be forgiving, to be perfect like our Heavenly Father is perfect. But until the day in which we are perfected in glory, we are still tainted by the remnants of sin. And we're still tainted by the remnants of our pride and our selfishness and our envy. And as such, it is inevitable as Christian people that we will sin against each other. And we need passages like this where our Lord instructs His disciples, His followers, about living together in the kingdom of God and especially how to react, how to respond when we see one another um, caught up in sin, when we sin against each other, when we hurt one another, when we lie to one another, when we say things that are not edifying to one another, when we do things to one another that show our brokenness, and, and that you, no Christian lives in isolation. Every single Christian is affected, not only by how he lives, but how those in the community of disciples lives. Our lives, your life as a Christian, always affects the lives of other Christians. It affects the life of the church. Jesus deals with His disciples not just on individualized bases, but as a a family of little ones. Little ones who are children of the Father. And like little ones, they occasionally show their flesh and their immaturity and they respond to each other. If you've ever raised children, reared children, I guess, reared children, um, you know what a challenge that can be at times. And here is our Father dealing with us, a group of sometimes yet unruly children, envious and proud and angry, and we have to learn how to deal with one another in a way that is submissive to our Father in heaven. Jesus begins to deal with His little ones, to to teach His his disciples, His little followers, about how to live together in the kingdom of God. Little children speaks of our humility to come into the kingdom. You have to be humble as as a little child, but it also, in a way, speaks of our vulnerability, we are easily led astray at times in our immaturity, spiritual immaturity, and sometimes we despise one another. We saw these themes unfolded last week in the text, and today's text, Jesus just takes those same themes and enlarges on them and becomes more specific about dealing with a brother. We know before Jesus said, to the body of Christ, if, if there's an offending hand, cut it off. Now he's going to get specific about that. And then he turned around and said, and don't despise those who, 
who are, are led astray and those who are faltering and those who are failing because you have a great God in heaven and their angels are always before God and He seeks the lost. So, so continue to love and to reach out to them and He's going to enlarge on that here as well. He's going to take those two themes and really enlar- enlarge those two themes in two paragraphs that we're going to put together here in the text today. Um, these two paragraphs are tied together by a common theme and that is dealing with a sinful brother, one of the other little ones in the family. Dealing with a sinful brother or sister. You can see that theme in verse 15, the beginning of the first paragraph. If your brother sins, and you see it also at the beginning of the second paragraph in verse 21, Peter says to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? And I forgive him. That is the theme. When my brother or sister sins, of course, brother is the male inclusive to refer to all of our brothers or sisters. So I'm going to preach to you this morning on dealing with sinful brothers and sisters, or if you like uh, alliteration, dealing with beastly brothers and sinful sisters. How do you deal with that? Maybe there are brothers or sisters that are in your own family that are sinning against you. Maybe it's another brother or sister in the congregation. You see them in sin. Maybe it's another brother or sister in Christ. All of us have a responsibility to look out for our brothers and sisters and to deal with them in a way that honors our mutual Father. So what does Jesus say? That's our text. Beginning in verse number 15, Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two or three on earth about, excuse me, if two or three on earth I I keep skipping the word, don't I? All right, back to verse 19. Sorry, I can't read today. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And then here's the second paragraph, verse 21. Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold and his wife, with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. 
So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him that debt. And when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience on me, with me, and I will pay you. And he refused, went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. There are two paragraphs here, and these two paragraphs deal with two different situations regarding a sinful brother. And so we're going to look at the first paragraph. This is verses 15 through 20. And we read here a scenario of a brother or a sister who's living in sin. Now, this may be someone who has sinned against you, but not necessarily. I think the application is bigger than that. In fact, even the reading of the text may or may not include that. Some of you, if you have different versions, um, you may have sinned against you, or it may just say, you see him who he just sinned, right? And that's because, as I mentioned last week, sometimes some ancient copies of the Scriptures, um, the oldest text that we have may have one or may have the other. And so there's a little bit of uncertainty as to whether this particular place says is dealing with a sin against you or just a sin in general. But I think the, the, the rest of the Scripture makes it clear that the application about this involves any sin. If you see a brother in any sin, whether it's a sin against you or whether it's he's just going on and sinning against someone else, or, or just sinning against God in general, all of them uh, can find application in what Jesus says here. The parallel, in fact, in Luke's gospel, the parallel to this account, it, Luke gives a very short uh, summary of what's going on here, but he says in Luke chapter 17, verse 3, if your brother sins, rebuke him. So we're talking about any sin, that a brother does. In fact, Galatians chapter one, chapter six, verse one makes it very clear when Paul says to the Galatians, brothers, if any of you, if anyone is caught in any transgression, then you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So, this applies then to the person. Jesus' admonitions here apply to the person who sinned against, but also to anyone who sees, who notices 
that their brother or sister is entrapped by unrepentant sin. Do you think that could happen for a Christian? I think it could happen for a while. A brother or sister has a blind spot in their life. They're just oblivious to this um, or, or just unwilling to see it for the moment. Their, their hearts are, are temporarily hardened about this thing. And they, they know it's sin, but they just they go on in it. They're just caught up in it. And they're just really not ready to give it up yet. Or they're, they're not willing to see. They're not willing to humble themselves yet. They're, they're, just, they're, they're going on for a while with, without repentance. They're just going on in their sin. Of course, there, there might be some cases where that person is not truly, truly a brother or sister. They're claiming Christ, but there's, there's never been real repentance and, and faith in the first place. That could be the case. But it is feasible that there are Christians who are caught up in this kind of sin and um, who are going on in an unrepentant way. Uh, and he's going to tell us, he's going to tell you, and you, and you, and you, and you, he's going to tell you how to respond to this. And he speaks that way. He, Jesus speaks in the singular all the way through here. He says, you respond this way. And he's going to, he's going to shift to plural when he gets down the way. But, but he starts just speaking to, to you. Even when, even when he says, treat him as a... Uh, a Gentile and a tax collector, he's still speaking in the singular, which seems strange because we're now thinking of, of a church action by this point. But, but the, point, the point is this. Jesus doesn't want us, he didn't want his original hearers to sort of think only in the collective that we're all supposed to do something about a sinning brother because what happens when we only think in the collective is that everybody assumes that, what? Somebody else is going to say something. Everyone assumes that, well, it's the pastor's job to, to deal with that sinful brother or sister. And of course, it is the pastor's job. But Jesus is going to lay it on the doorstep of every one of His disciples. You, if you see a brother sinning, do something about it. If you know of some downfall, in your brother, you ought to love them enough to risk speaking to them. And you better do it right, rightly, but you better do it. This, I think that's why he speaks to the way he does. Too often we hide behind the idea that somebody else will talk to them. No, friends, each of us is our brother's keeper. Each of us is responsible to notice our brothers and our sisters. And to challenge them, and to rebuke them, and to exhort them, and to encourage them, each of us. When you see a sister struggling, sisters help. That's what he's saying. You. Now, he's going to give some instructions, and I think there are three important caveats to this. He's going to tell us, to go to that person privately and to confront them about their wrong thinking or their wrong behavior. But 
it's important that we remember all the Scriptures. What do the Scriptures have to say about how we should approach a brother or sister who is living in sin? How should we approach them? Well, it says, first of all, that we should make sure that what we're dealing with, what we're confronting, is really sin. I've known sometimes Christians who want to be confronters and truth speakers and are really confronting more their own applications of Scripture, someone who doesn't meet up to their own standards, or, they, or they're reading into somebody's motives, they're, they're assuming that they know someone's heart, and it's just not clear. Okay? And of course, if we see a brother who we think is struggling, we, we could say some things, we could, we could speak, but we need to be very careful, and I want to make sure everybody knows this, we need to be careful that when we, when we do begin to follow this process that Jesus lays out in Matthew 18, that it is about something that's clearly a sin. It's clear, clearly um, against the Word of God. Secondly, we need to be careful of hypocrisy in our own lives. Jesus has already made that clear. Remember back in chapter 7, do not judge lest you be judged. The same measure that you mete out to others is going to be meted out to you. He says, don't be condemning of others when you yourself are going on in some other kind of sin. You know, it's easy, it's always easy to see other people's sin, right? What sometimes we fail to do is to deal with our own hearts first. He warns us about that. He also warns us throughout the Scriptures to guard our attitude about how we approach a brother. Galatians chapter 6.1 is absolutely the key verse in all the Bible about this, I think. It's just such a great way to say it. You who are spiritual, so you're walking in the Spirit. Not perfectly, nobody's perfect, but, but you know, your heart is right, you're sensitive, you're repentant, you're walking in the Spirit right now. You who are spiritual, you do this. And you do it with a spirit of what? Meekness, gentleness, patience, love. Not, well, I can't believe you're doing this. That's not the way a Christian would act. Okay. Well, yeah, it's not the way a Christian should act, and sometimes you act away, not the way a Christian should act. So you do it, you do it. We, this is such a fine balance. We don't ever want to pull back from speaking truth. And that's what's the danger here. But there's an equal danger of speaking the truth without any gentleness. You speak, said, speak the truth with meekness, and then he said, speak it with humility considering yourself, lest you also be tempted, right? So I'm not coming to someone as someone who is above sin, trying to lift them up out of their their poor, benighted state down here in sin. I come to them as a fellow sinner who's fighting my own sin, and I'm just reminding them, hey, you need to get back in the fight. You need to not give up. We all got to stay in the fight. We've all got to continue to repent and believe and hope in the Lord Jesus and not grow cold toward our sin. So those are the caveats. The key attitude is the attitude of repentance. That's what we want to see. That's what we want to um, see in our own hearts and the hearts and the lives of those that we're we're speaking to. Uh, Repentance is ongoing sorrow for sin, humility, a willingness to renounce my sin and strive for 
experiential holiness through the grace of God. That's repentance. And repentance, I think, or lack of it, is the key difference between these two paragraphs, between dealing with somebody according to verses 15 to 20 and dealing with somebody according to verses 21 and following. Whether or not that person expresses repentance is, I think, the key difference. Because notice, notice the, the, the sort of uh, tension between them. Verses 15 to 20, we're sort of ratcheting up this, this pressure on this sinning brother, right? And verse 21, he says, forgive somebody 77 times. So am I supposed to continue to pressure them about how they're living or am I supposed to forgive them for their sin? Which one am I supposed to do? And the answer is given in different ways. Some people say that verses 21 and following are dealing with private um, matters, sins against me personally that I'm supposed to overlook. And the other is is more of a, a public sin that needs to be confronted. But I think really the difference, the, the, the primary difference, is how that person responds to um, that confrontation, that exhortation. Do they respond with humility and repentance? Okay, then you deal with them according to verses 21 and following. Or do they continue to resist that exhortation from the Word of God? Then you continue to follow the pattern laid down in verses 15 and following. I think that's the key difference. And here's why I think that. Um, First of all, because of the text in front of us, in verses 15 to 20, there's nothing said about the person's repentance. In fact, the progression can shows that he continues to be not repentant. And in the following paragraph, I think it's implied that the person is repentant before you forgive him. He's asking you for mercy, for forgiveness, and you are not to withhold that forgiveness. And I think, secondly, that the parallel in Luke chapter 17 that I mentioned earlier, the parallel passage to this one in Luke's gospel, it makes it explicit. Um, Luke gives a very brief summary of what Matthew spreads out here. Matthew goes into all these details. Luke just simply says it this way. If your brother sins, rebuke him. That's the first paragraph in Matthew. But then Luke says, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times and saying, I repent, you must forgive him. That's the second paragraph in Matthew. So the difference between how we deal with brothers is it turns on how they respond to the Word of God that we're giving them, the exhortation that comes from the Word. There is all the world of difference. Can I say this? Listen, there is all the world of difference between The person on the one hand who struggles with ongoing temptation and even frequent falls into sin and who gets up and says, God, why do I keep doing this? Change me, save me, my hope is in Jesus. And, And when they're confronted, they say, yes, you're right. God, forgive me. There's all the difference in the world between that 
And the person who likewise frequently sins, but he just goes on in his sin without a care. As if, well, maybe God doesn't really matter. God doesn't care. I just This is just the way I want to live. This is what makes me happy. This is just what I'm going to do. This is how I am. I don't think I'm ever going to change. There's no faith there. There's no repentance there. It's all the difference between someone who's a believer and someone who's not. Someone who is a brother or sister and someone who may likely not be a true brother at all. Okay. So this passage turns, the, 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 the turn between these two paragraphs hinges on the exhibition of repentance in the life of the person that's being dealt with. Now, with, with the kind of person who resists the Word, So we see a brother who's in sin, you see him and you personally, privately, you go to him and you confront him, and yet he's resistant. She's determined to go on in her way. Then there is a second step in this process of confrontation. The first step was private exhortation, if you want to put it that way, private exhortation. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. The goal is gaining your brother, right? The goal is not, I'm going to go to this person to sort of punish him for being bad. The goal is to win him back to faith in Christ and to repentance. The goal is to keep this sin as private as possible. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Proverbs chapter 10, verse number 12. So it starts with private exhortation, but if the person is resistant to that, it goes to this next step, which is community affirmation. Community affirmation. Verse number 16, if he does not listen, take two or three others with you, that every charge may be established on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Of course, that's the principle of justice laid down in the Old Testament. There must be two or three witnesses for a charge to be valid. The role of these brothers or sisters, and by the way, if you find yourself, you know, trying to exhort a brother or a sister who's going on in in some pretty clear and obvious sinful ways, and you've, you've talked with them again and again privately, and you just feel like you need to bring another brother or sister, I would encourage you to find a brother or sister who is as spiritually mature as you can find, knowing that not one of us is perfect. And to go to that person, and together, or in addition to one another, you confront, express your concern. The role of these witnesses is to affirm the concern of the person who initiated this counseling to affirm their concern that this really is sin, to endorse the assessment that the matter is really a serious matter. It's not just a matter of preference or perception that this one person got there, um, you know, got, got all bent out of shape. But rather, no, there's two or three other brothers and sisters who say, yeah, no, this is right. This is something that, brother, you need to think about, pray about, and repent of. The Scripture says there is safety in a multitude of counselors. And who knows 
what person may be delivered from their blindness by the loving exhortation of a couple of sisters in Christ. And of course, I don't think any of these steps is necessarily a one-time thing. Okay, I spoke to him once. It's time to bring in three people and sit down and have a discussion. No, this, you can see this is, this is meant to be a, a, a situation that's, that's drawn out to bring... The goal is to see repentance and to keep the sin covered as, as much as possible. If that person is willing to humble himself, he will not have to face humiliation um, in a public way. And that's what we want. That's our goal. But if that person is still resistant, then we move to the third level, which is church admonition. Church admonition. Verse 17 says, if he refuses to listen to them, that is those witnesses, those others who are concerned, then tell it to the church, that is to the whole assembly. And the implication is that the whole church admonishes that person because it says, if he will not listen to them. So there's an admonition from the whole church. The church speaks to that sister or brother with one voice, saying together, listen, we all agree that this is a serious sin. We all agree that there seems to be no remorse at this point. We all urge you to come back to the Lord in repentant faith. This may be done perhaps with a public meeting with the brother or sister, but more likely is done through a letter sent from the whole. And again, the purpose of all of this is not to punish some person, but to chasten, to correct, to restore that person to communion with God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 14 spells out the mood of that exhortation explicitly when it says, listen to this, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So when, when Paul says, have nothing to do with him, he can't mean in an absolute sense, because he turns around in the very next breath and says, warn him as a brother in Christ. So this is, a, this is that third step. This is that preliminary censure from the church that is as yet short of complete disassociation. It's done in a spirit of brotherly, sisterly love and affection and concern for the soul of that person. But then sadly, there are times when that supposed brother or sister will not repent, and that brings us to the fourth step, which is excommunication. And that's seen in verse 17, the end of the verse. And if he refuses to listen to the church... Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. A Gentile and a tax collector. What was a Gentile to one of the people of God? He was uh, an outsider. There's us and there's them. Let this person be to you as an outsider, as not one of us, as a common sinner. Let him no longer be recognized as a brother or a sister. Let us no longer continue to validate their claim of faith by communing together in the Lord's Supper, fellowshipping together as brothers and sisters. Why? Because faith always gives evidences of itself, right? Fruit. 
And at this point, the church says we see no fruit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when the church censures one of its members, Paul says, don't even eat with that person. But some people say, well, Jesus said, treat them like a Gentile and tax collector. Wasn't Jesus a friend of sinners? Didn't he sit down and eat with tax collectors and sinners? How do you reconcile that? And I reconcile it with 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, which says, Paul says, I wrote to you not to associate with any immoral person. And then he clarifies. He says, now let me be clear. Not at all, he says, am I speaking, am I meaning the sexually immoral of this world, <laughs> unbelievers, or greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But he says, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, clear, public, unrepentant, sinful behavior just going on. This person says he's a brother, and we say, no, we don't recognize you as a brother anymore. He says that person, not even to eat with such a person. In other words, we continue to reach out to sinners in the world, of course. Yes. But we separate from sinners who profess to be brothers and yet go on in their sin. This refusing to eat with such a person is at least a refusal to eat the Lord's Supper together, to commune together, and so excommunication. It probably refers to regular, ordinary table fellowship, sitting down to break bread one-on-one. If that breaking of bread is just sitting down to enjoy a meal as if nothing has happened. In other words, Paul, what Paul is saying is there, need, there is there has been now a fundamental rupture in the relationship between us. We were considered brothers and sisters, and now we consider him or her an outsider to the people of God. So now having laid out the process of this admonition and discipline, Jesus now emphasizes the gravity of this action, the seriousness of it. And he emphasizes it quite strongly. Look at verse 18. I mean, you might almost say this is an overemphasis, but our Lord wants us to see how serious a matter this is. He says, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth. Now he's speaking in the plural. Okay? He's referring back now to the, to the action of the whole church here. Whatever you bind on earth shall be what? Bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is the same authority to bind or loose, of course, that Jesus gave to, remember, back in chapter 16? To Peter. Now, of course, he's giving it to all of the disciples. This is, in other words, this is a function of the whole church. It's not a function of papal authority passed on from one person to the next, but a function of the authority of the whole congregation. And the binding here is that same binding that was mentioned back in chapter 12 when Jesus binds the strong man or in chapter 13 when he binds the wheat and the tares. In other words, this is a statement about 
heavenly judgment, eternal judgment even, as John makes clear in John chapter 20, verse 23, if you, if you, the church, forgive the sins of any, and of course this is founded on the gospel, if you forgive the sins of any, it will, they will be forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it will be withheld. This is, I mean, isn't this saying it pretty strongly? If the church disciplines somebody, that person will not go to heaven. If the church does not recognize you as a brother or sister, I mean, this is saying it pretty strongly. Now, of course... This is not to say that the church or human beings are determining what God does. This is a recognition of what is done in heaven, even as God is leading His people here on earth through the Word underneath the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Human beings, of course, can be wrong. But these human beings are not making this judgment based on their own opinions. They're, based, they're making it based on what the Word of God says and the, and the present response of that person to the Word. And of course, all the way through here, our hope and our prayer is that the response of the person to the Word will change. And if it does, then we say, praise God, brother or sister. But if it goes on in an unbelieving way, and the church binds that person in a way that is reflective of what God Himself knows and determines. In fact, I pointed this out before in the passage in chapter 16, and you'll see it again here. Um, There is a footnote, if you use the ESV anyway, there's a footnote, and some others may have it as well, of a more literal translation that goes like this. What you bind in heaven shall have been bound, or what you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. What you loose shall have been loosed. As if God's action is really the determinative one. And of course that's true, but what he's focusing on now is not heaven. He's focusing on what's happening right down here in the nitty gritty. And when the church does this, it, in other words, this is, the, this is the, the, the highest language you can imagine to say without you know, being heretical, that that this is a serious matter indeed, what the church says about your faith. And Jesus says it again in verse 19. He makes it clear. Again, I say to you, if two or three agree on earth as about anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Again, the same judicial principle is at work. There's two or three witnesses. And in this context, the whole church is bearing witness to this sin and praying for wisdom throughout this whole process. And when they chasten one of their members, it's so serious that Jesus says it's being done in the presence of Christ Himself. That He is, and obviously in saying this, He's he's sort of looking forward to the time when He's not going to be with them. And yet they're they're chastening and, and, and confronting members within their own disciple community. And he's saying to them, in those days, when you do that, and you do this the way I've told you to do it, then I will be there. I'm there doing this along uh, with you and, and through you. In other words, again, heightening the seriousness of, of all that's going on here um, in this passage. Church discipline is a serious thing. It is the chastening of Jesus Himself. It is Jesus Himself warning 
us through his people, correcting us, pleading with us. And every single one of us, listen to me, every single one of us must be wary lest any of us be hardened through the deceitfulness of our sins. And to thank God for the admonitions of his people. Have you ever been confronted by a brother or sister about your own sin? I know I have. I have. You know, I am so thankful to God that he cared enough about me to raise up a brother or sister to say, hey, John, what are you doing? This is the love of the Lord. And we should thank God for the admonitions of his people. For the moment, all chastening seems what? Painful, not pleasant. And you know, in that moment when somebody comes to you and they say, hey, brother, sister, this is not right. You know what the first thing you're going to feel? Pain, wounded pride, anger. It, it inevitably rises up in the human heart. But listen to this. But afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who are willing to be trained by it. It does. Afterward, there's such great joy and peace of cleansing, righteousness, hope. And that's what this second paragraph is all about. Okay? Now we come, and this is what I'll cover quickly. Look at this second paragraph. At any point in this process, this brother or sister is being confronted about sin, and he begins to be repentant, be remorseful, be humble about that sin. Well, now the situation has changed. All right, now we're moving from going on in this first paragraph. Now we're moving into the realm of this second paragraph because repentance calls for forgiveness every time. That's the glory of grace. And very quickly, let's look at the second situation, verses 21 to 35. Verse 21, Peter came to him and says, Lord, how often does my brother sin against me? And I forgive him. As many as seven times, and I have no doubt Peter thought he was being pretty generous. The going rate was like three times, right? I mean, that's kind of the rabbi say, three, three strikes and you're out. If it's more than three, then, then, you know, then you don't have to, you can just go on and be angry. Jesus says to him, I do not say to you seven times. He's going to blow Peter's mind. I say to you 77 times. <laughs> 77 times? And there's actually uncertainty about what the Greek, it's two Greek words and uncertainty about what they mean, whether it means 77 or 70 times 7, which some of your translations have, which would be 490 times. And I think if you're arguing over which one it is, you're missing the whole point, which is that you can't count it. You just, you don't, this is not something you keep track of. Let's see, we're at 68, I think now, times that my wife has done this against me or my husband or my friend or Whatever. No, it's, you're, you're missing the point. You just forgive and forgive and forgive. As long as there's any show of remorse and forgiveness and, and repentance, you say, brother, it's not mine to hold it against you. I forgive you. I release you. And the great, Jesus tells a, a great story to illustrate the point and to highlight the motive for forgiveness. Because we all know we should forgive people when 
they sin against us and come and ask for forgiveness. And it's, it's the doing of it that's hard. It's not the knowing that it's right to be done. It's the doing of it. So this story encourages us. And of course, it's a great story just the way it's told. Jesus is a masterful storyteller, right? There's this king, has a servant, and he owes him an outrageous sum, 10,000 talents. And we're like, what even is that? And people don't even quite know for sure. But, but the estimation, of the, the assumption is if it's a talent of silver, this is probably something like 20 or 30 years of labor. One talent to save up enough to buy one talent's worth of, of silver. So 20, 20 30 years of, of labor for an average worker, um, that's a lot. So if you've got 10,000 talents, do the math, that's like 200,000 years wages or over 3,000 lifetimes of work that this guy owes. And, and then if you want to go even a little further, why does he say 10,000? 10,000 is the largest number for which a single sort of Greek word exists, and a talent is the largest sort of amount of money. And, and, and so maybe it's just like superlative, superlative. Like we would say, he owed zillions, right? It's not even a number. It's just he owed so much you can't count it. And that's, and that's I think, the point. We owe a debt that we could never repay, just like this guy does. And... I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's almost foolish to think about trying. But he falls on his knees and he begs the king for mercy, and the king is astonishing. He wipes out not just, you know, all of the debt, but what he can possibly repay in life. He wipes it all out. He doesn't say, okay, I'll meet you halfway. He just wipes it all out. He just forgives this person completely. Now, in turn, the guy goes out into the courtyard of the palace, and he sees one of his fellow servants that owes him 100 denarii. So if a denarii is a day's wage, he owes him about three months' rent, right? And he goes to this guy and he tells him, in the, or this guy comes to him, and in almost the exact same wording, Matthew, Jesus doesn't want us to miss it, right? He falls down, he begs in the same way that the first guy did, but this, second, this first servant, he looks at the second one and he refuses. He hardens his heart against him. He throws him into debtor's prison. But when the word gets back to the king, the king is angry. And he delivers this man over to be tortured in prison until he pays everything. And when will that be? When will a sinner's debt to the eternally righteous God ever be fully paid? Well, if we're only thinking about the story, now we're jumping to the application, of course, because we, we feel it and we know it. But if you're only thinking about the story at this point, you feel very satisfied. This guy got what he, he got his comeuppance. That's exactly where he needs to be. How dare he be like this? But then Jesus gives the punchline of the whole thing. Verse 35, So also will my heavenly Father do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is like that story that Nathan, the prophet Nathan, told King David. You remember the story? A rich man had many sheep. This poor guy has one little pet lamb. The, king, the rich guy has a, has a friend come in for dinner. He kills the poor guy's pet lamb and serves him up for dinner. And King David, sitting on his throne, says, 
How dare he? It will be off with his head. And then Nathan the prophet turns and gives the punchline. You're the man. And that's the way it is for Jesus with his disciples and with us. He wants to turn to every one of us and say, if we're harboring resentment in our hearts, you are the one I'm talking about. That anger you feel, that's righteous anger. And it ought to be directed to you, my friend. If you refuse to forgive those who've sinned against you, and I've asked your forgiveness, and you're still harboring resentment and hatred, holding them off, keeping them at arm's length. Hey, no, you have to pay a little bit more. I'm going to make you pay. Listen, friends. God, help us to confess our sin of resentment and bitterness. We've forgotten that we were the ones who owed a debt that we could never repay. We've forgotten that we have been forgiven. When a brother or sister comes to us in repentance, let us not be cynical about them to assume that this can't be genuine. I know what's really going on. This is the twelfth time they've done this thing. And now they think they're going to repent. Well, I don't believe it for a second. Let us be careful of being cynical, of being angry, being bitter. Who are we to be so demanding and unforgiving? And the forgiveness that Jesus is talking about, of course, is not to be some sort of stingy forgiveness in word only. Well, I forgive you. But, I don't ever want to have anything to do with you again. This is a forgiveness that's like a free gift. You just give it. Not because it's deserved or earned. Yeah, someone might have to earn back some respect or some trust. But forgiveness, you just got to give it. You don't get to just charge people for that. You've got to do it from your heart, Jesus says right here. Do you see that? He says, you've got to forgive them from your heart. Why? Because if you don't forgive them from your heart, your heart's never been transformed by the forgiveness that you've received. You're not a Christian. And so, yeah, your father's going to throw you into the prison until you pay every penny back. Because you don't think of things in terms of free gifts. You think of things in terms of, of transactions and being good for it and earning it. You're going to make that person do that for you? You don't have any understanding of the gospel. You don't have any understanding of a free gift. So brothers and sisters, guard your hearts. Be amazed at the gospel. And extend that grace to those who sin against you. Who come and say, listen, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You know, we need both of these paragraphs as a church. As as individual Christians, we need them both. We need Truth speakers. We need people who aren't afraid to come to a brother or sister and say, listen, what you're doing, what you're believing, what you're, the way you're acting is, is wrong. Let me, let me help. I've been there too. I've, I've struggled with my sins. Let me show you. Let me pray with you. Right? We need people who are willing to do that. 
we also must forgive as we've been forgiven. And some of us maybe struggle with one or maybe struggle with the other. Or most of us probably struggle a little with both. The late theologian and author R.C. Sproul said, Let us not be afraid to call sin, sin. But let us also not be slow to forgive it and to look past it. That's taking both of these paragraphs and putting them right together. We need to be people who obey our Lord in all these things. Maybe there's somebody that you're, the Lord is laying on your heart right now who needs you to speak truth to them. He needs you to encourage, to rebuke, to exhort, to pray for them more earnestly. And God forbid that we ever just go to a brother and say, hey, let me tell you where you're wrong, not having prayed for them. Maybe the Lord is laying somebody on your heart. They need you to love them. They need you to love them enough to speak truth to them. Some person who's struggling with sin, who's tempted to go away from God completely. Maybe somebody who's going on living in sin. They just need to be confronted and, and dealt with. And, and maybe there's somebody that the Lord is laying on your heart that, that they've repented, they've, they've at least confessed their sin to you, and, and maybe you've, you've been tempted to think in your heart, well, I don't know if they really meant it and to be stingy with your forgiveness. Well, let them prove that they're really sorry. If they're sorry, they won't do it again. Is that ever true of you? Do you go to God and say, I'm sorry, and the proof of it is I'll never do it again? God knows you're a liar. Or maybe not that you're a liar, but that you're, you're going to probably go back and do it again. God knows. His forgiveness is not given to you on a merit basis. It's given to you as a free gift. And yours better be too. Or you're not a child of your heavenly Father. I'll just say it that way. You don't know grace. It's foreign to you. You've got a different gospel, my friend. And it's not a gospel that saves. May the Lord be merciful to us. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful. <laughs> Beyond thankful, we are our lives depend on your mercy, your forgiveness given to us as a free gift. We pray that you would so overwhelm us with that that we would freely forgive those who've sinned against us and come with repentance. We pray for, for those who are being tempted who to walk away from you, to grow hardened in the deceitfulness of their sin. Oh God, Raise up, brothers and sisters, churches, to speak truth to them. Help us each to do our part, humbly and faithfully, Lord. Please speak through us. We feel we have no, we have no moral superiority to speak on our own. But Lord, we're waiting for you to speak through us. So we ask you these things humbly in Jesus' name.